Well, we took a rather extended break from the book of Esther. Uh, we, we took it to finish up John's gospel at the end of Lent and in the beginning of the Easter season. And so today we're returning to the book of Esther, to, to Esther chapter 8. So just a little reminder, since it's been a few weeks. Um, you'll recall that what happened last was Haman had been hoist with his own petard. And impaled on the pole that he had built for Mordecai. So you have to sort of get your mind back into the the book of Esther for a minute. Even though Haman is dead, his lethal edict against the Jews lives on. That, That irrevocable law that was passed is still on the books. And that means that the machinery of execution of extermination, that machinery is still in place. So Haman's death really dealt with the symptom. The law is the root of the problem. Now, we know, of course, that the the tide has turned in chapter 7. As a reader, you can kind of feel it. There's a sort of relief that happens there in the book. Yet, all that has happened from the perspective of the monarch, uh, from the perspective of Xerxes is that he has saved his queen from an alleged assault of Haman. So Esther, you know, Esther who has made two requests, right? Spare my life and spare the life of my people. To this point, she has not succeeded in saving the Jews, her people, only herself. Only herself. So, in the words of that great philosopher, Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. And here in Esther, it ain't over. And so with that, I'd like to make three points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin if you're visiting. Three points. Exaltation. Edict. The edict is 3 through 14. And exaltation. So first, exaltation. And here I mean the exaltation, the lifting up of Mordecai himself. That same day, the text says, that's the day of Esther's second banquet. Remember, her strategy was a two-banquet strategy. On the day of that second banquet, that's the day of Haman's execution. On that same day, Xerxes gives the queen the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the text tells you. So the property of a condemned criminal, it would be forfeited to the crown. But to degrade Haman's memory, Xerxes gives his labors, the fruit of his labors, his land to his foes. And also Mordecai is elevated, he's promoted, he's brought into the presence of the king. Because finally, we're told that Esther told how he was related to her. Her Jewishness was revealed in the previous chapter. But Mordecai's Jewishness, not until right now. And so the king gives Mordecai his signet ring, which he had freshly reclaimed from Haman's dead body. And that makes Mordecai essentially the prime minister with this grand delegated authority. So he gets this position, and with the position comes a property inheritance. Esther appoints him over the vast estate of Haman. 
So the picture is one now where Mordecai is exalted and enriched and clothed with the authority previously held by Haman. So the second thing to see here is the edict. It's been about, in the text it's hard to pick this up, but it's been about 70 days since Haman's edict to destroy the Jews till now. And the edict remains in force. Remember, it was set for about 9 or 10 or 11 months away. The edict remains in force. Time is passing. And while Haman's dead and Esther's life is spared, the king has given her things that she hasn't asked for, like Haman's estate and Mordecai's promotion. But he has not given her the critical thing that she has asked for, the life of her people. So again, she goes in, she pleads with the king. It's necessary, it appears, to put her life at risk again. Though here, with everything that's transpired in the book, she's much more assured. So she goes right into the king's presence. Now here, there's no head fake, no indirection, no proposal about banquets. She just falls down at his feet, weeping. Again, this picks up the word falling, which is a critical thread through the whole book. Mordecai refused to fall before Haman. The lot fell against the Jews. Haman's wife said he was beginning to fall before Mordecai. Haman falls on the couch where Esther is reclining, and now Esther falls at the king's feet, weeping. She doesn't even wait for the golden scepter to be stretched out to her to be granted a hearing, she just starts pleading. That's how confident she is. And she begs him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, who we're reminded again, remember Haman is an Agagite. We're told that a couple more times. That means he's an ancient enemy of the Jews. Going back to the time of the Exodus and reaffirmed at the time of Saul. So the king extends the scepter, formally sparing her, though I think that's a foregone conclusion here. And he grants her permission to speak. And if you look at her speech, she uses a series of four phrases. They all start with if. So she's appealing to two things here. The king's self-interest, which is always a good thing to appeal to with this guy, and his affection for her. If it pleases the king, And if he regards me with favor, and she alternates back and forth between his own interest, his bond with her. And what she asks for is quite bold, right? She wants an edict or an order written overruling, essentially revoking the order that Haman had devised to destroy the Jews. Notice something about the appeal. She wisely omits the king's complicity in the existing decree. It's all that evil Haman's fault. It has nothing to do with your bungling incompetence. And then she makes this heartfelt plea, which is often the only weapon the weak have in the face of the mighty. It's just to plea. She says, how can I bear? Notice the tone of her argument here, very different than the tactician she has been in the book to this point. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? 
Now, I know that after the turning point in chapter 7, it is hard to get yourself emotionally back into the, the pathos and the atmosphere of, the, of threat that has pervaded the book. But it's clear that that threat is still hanging over the Jews. They've had their enemy defeated, their champion has been exalted, and yet they are still living in the valley of the shadow of death. They're still living in weakness and exposure, awaiting the final rescue. And so Esther lays all her cards on the table. She drops all pretense at this point of even playing to the king's interest. It's her emotional trauma that comes to the fore. How can I bear this? How can I bear to see this? This is a form of, if you will, political intercession stripped of all artifice. She's banking on the fact, not only that she's won some goodwill, but that Xerxes is still fundamentally a human being with some empathy. As usual, there's a subtle subtext here which goes in which something like, I cannot bear this, is virtually the same as, I'm not going to abide by another decision. She has that kind of authority with him at this point. And so he's in a bind. How does he grant Esther's request in light of the absurd Persian legal system, right, where laws and edicts cannot be revoked? How does he save face in the quandary? So he replies. The text says, notice, he replies to, to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew. So Jew now is a title of honor in the book. And he says this, he says, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and I have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now I want you to notice this. This is a piece of political propaganda. This is manifestly false. It was because Haman, on trumped up charges, allegedly attacked the queen. Remember, he fell on the couch where Esther was laying to plead for his life. And Xerxes used this as a pretext to hang him. It was not because he had attacked the Jews that he was executed. But Xerxes now wants credit as champion of the Jews. Right? When clearly, he didn't really care. But now that it's becoming hip... Right? Xerxes is like, hey, I was defending the Jews before it was cool to defend the Jews. It's a lie. You know, Machiavelli, in The Prince, a 16th century uh, political theory, a little tract that he wrote, he says this. He says, the ruler doesn't need to be concerned with things like justice, integrity, and the like. But it is important that he appear to be concerned with such things. So Xerxes is a Machiavellian. Right? This falsehood is actually Xerxes' first acknowledgement in the book, in the text of the book, of the Jews. And it sounds like he's saying, look, I've done all I can. Haman is dead. I gave you his property. What more do you want? And then with a sort of nonchalance, he grants her one more thing, which turns out to be the decisive thing. He says, all right, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews. You do it. 
I'm not going to write it. I can't really be bothered. But I see that it means a lot to you, Esther. So go ahead, write another decree. Do Do what seems best to you and then seal it with my signet ring. And then notice he says this. If you do that, this, by the way, is unintended satire. He says, if you do that, no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So we have irrevocable laws that can be nullified or negated by passing yet another irrevocable law. So the law, like the empire, is a theater of the absurd. But as we've seen throughout the book, God works in the midst of these absurdities for his people. And it's here, it's here that you have the actual political, the actual political turning point of the book. Here, for the first time, a favorable legal outcome for the whole Jewish population becomes a live option. Here you have the equivalent of telling the Supreme Court to leave the precedent intact but hand down a decision that effectively undermines the precedent. So that's what happens. With Mordecai now acting as the chief justice, really the sole justice. The original decree for annihilation is less than nine months away, and so this whole vast Persian postal system is again activated Mordecai's orders go, and you'll notice there's an order listed in the text. First to the Jews, who are now the leading actors in the drama. And then all the various political officials, all the people in their scripts and in their languages. Notice this as well about the, uh, the postal system. It says the decree went to the Jews in their script and language. Meaning there's a Hebrew copy of the decree floating around the empire. This did not happen with the original decree from Haman. And it's here to encourage the Jews. As it goes around, they recognize they now have official status. They're legal in the empire. Something like a Constantinian conversion to legalized Christianity has happened for the Jews in ancient Persia. And this whole decree is framed by Mordecai, who, by the way, is a shrewd politician, it's framed to demoralize their enemies. Any allies of Haman. Mordecai knows that the Jews will need an overwhelming victory and that victory starts with effective propaganda. Of which there's one more little piece. The text says the sealed dispatches were sent on fast horses, specially bred for the king. The point here is this. This edict has better backing and better pedigree than the previous edict. These are special horses bred for the king. This edict has the support of the king. And if you look at the the actual content of the edict, it allows the Jews in every city to assemble and to protect themselves. Now, this will require all the local officials to stand down. It would also hopefully persuade any anti-Semites to abandon their cause. Because attacking the Jews now would implicitly make you an enemy of the king. It's also 
primarily a defensive decree. If attacked, they can defend. It's important to keep that in mind. And it's written in this language to mirror the earlier decree from Haman. They have the right to kill, annihilate, and destroy. That's, that's language lifted right out of the first decree. The armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and the plunder the property of their enemies. This is the language of terror. And to the Jews, it's the language of psychological warfare and psychological preparation for war. An attack on the Jews, the decree says, will subject you to land of Canaan-like holy war in return. It's a defensive decree. But if you attack, you will be subject to holy war in return. And the reason for this is that the threat has to be eliminated, even as the Jews were to be eliminated. So at play here, of course, is the ancient promise at the fountainhead of the covenant. Those who bless the seed of Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse the seed of Abraham will be cursed. So the day appointed for the Jews to defend themselves, the exact same day of Haman's decree. So the two decrees are going to collide. And the edict then wings its way around the empire, including being issued in the capital city of Susa. Which brings me to the third point, exaltation. So Mordecai, he'd been temporarily exalted with a parade around the city earlier in the book. He's formally promoted in this chapter. Now he makes a public appearance. He leaves the king's presence wearing these royal garments and a large gold crown. Mordecai now has the splendor of the palace, which to the Jews would have looked a lot like priestly garb and a royal crown. So the sackcloth and the ashes are reversed. And the city, this is a beautiful thing to see here, the city, most of which is clearly not anti-Semitic, has a joyous celebration. For, For the Jews, what was previously described in four words, mourning, fasting, weeping, wailing, gets four new words. Happiness, joy, gladness, honor. The Lord has exchanged their mourning for dancing. They share, though, I want you to see this, they share in the honor of Mordecai, their exalted head and mediator. And for the first time in a book full of banquets, you get a Jewish banquet. Every province where the edict goes, there's joy and gladness and feasting and celebrating. And then, this other effect of the edict. People from other nationalities have the fear of the Jews struck into their hearts And they become, they join the Jews. Some of this is clearly political opportunism. People want to be on the side that's winning. But it's also a glimpse of this gathering of the seed of Abraham from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. So with their champion, Mordecai, in the citadel, clothed with authority, Jewishness is no longer a thing to hide. But it's an identity that they now embrace with joy. So I want to summarize this text and see what we can take from it under 
three headings. I'm going to briefly revisit all three points here in closing. So first, exaltation. We see here more clearly than anywhere else in this book, more clearly than anywhere in Esther, right, that Mordecai is a picture, a beautiful type, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It's as clear here as it is anywhere. He's enthroned after his humiliation in the citadel, in majesty, in splendor, and in awe, and he's given authority over the nations. As prophet, he speaks, right? He issues a decree that reverses the prior decree against his people. As priest, he mediates for, he represents his people. And as king, he's enthroned and he defends and he fights for his people. Exalted as prophet, priest, and king, he publishes throughout the world an edict which promises his people's deliverance and vengeance on their enemies. He's a picture of the exalted and ascended head and king of the, of the church, Lord of the nations, Jesus. And that brings me to the edict itself. The edict. Now here's something very similar between the situation of the Jews in Persia and our situation now comes to the fore. We live in the time of Christ's exaltation. The time of his decisive elevation to the right hand of God. But before the time of the final battle. Before the time of the final deliverance. It is the already Christ is exalted and the not yet. The full manifestation of that victory lies in the future. We live in a time where, like the text, two edicts are in force, though one is decisive, and will be in force until the last day. Right? The first edict of sin and death still exacts a toll on the world and on the creation, and even on the people of God, for we struggle, and we sin, and we die, and we have enemies. The second edict, though, the gospel published abroad, It overturns the first, but not yet displaces and eliminates it. It overlaps with it in the world. That edict brings us gladness and joy in the midst of things. It revives our hope. It secures your future. What does Paul call the spirit which comes when you believe the gospel? He calls that spirit the down payment, the assurance, the pledge, the seal of your inheritance. It's been often said, and I think it's right, that we live between D-Day and V-Day. It's important to understand this, to know the time the Christian life is lived in, because you can get hurt badly between V-Day and D-Day. I mean between D-Day and V-Day between the issuing of the Edict of Triumph and the final battle. So not only does Mordecai show us a picture of Christ, the plight of the Jewish people in this situation is a picture of the church's plight. So finally, the third point is exaltation. Exaltation with a U, to exalt, to to be glad, to leap for joy. So in the text... 
We can see the importance, the centrality of this elevation of our champion to the citadel of universal power. The certainty of his coming victory because he is already victorious. And how this shapes the Christian life. The color this gives to Christian existence. We live with confidence and joy in this already not yet tension. And we intercede, like Esther does, for the kingdom to come in fullness. We fight, right? we train, we prepare for, we engage in battles. Some of which are, like they were for Esther and Mordecai, real strategic political battles. Right? We don't believe in flight from the world of real politics. We have to live in it. Often, like the Jews, these are largely defensive battles, not of our own making. Remember, all the armor for the church in Ephesians 6 is defensive armor, except the sword of the Spirit, the edict of the gospel. With that, we go forth into the world, and like in the text, we gather converts to the covenant community. Right? We pray, we preach, and finally, we celebrate, right? we exult, because Christ being exalted means that the decree against you has been canceled and nullified. So, we talk about a lot about this already, not yet here. But I want to be clear about this. The already, not yet situation we find ourselves in, for all of its shadows, for all of its sober realism, is a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor, feasting and celebrating. These are to mark the church. Right? Exulting is not merely singing praise. Exulting with a U is a full-throated, embodied ethos of celebration. You know, it is possible to come to church for your whole life and praise God and never exult in God. But Jesus' exaltation, the humiliated one who's been lifted up and promoted, raised and installed in power as your prophet, your priest, your king, means now is the time of exaltation. Glory be to the triune God. Amen.